Hello and welcome to the Road Not Traveled podcast, the podcast about visiting the lesser-known wonders of America. I'm your host, Deaver Probst, and I'm sitting in a parking lot. Admittedly, an odd place to start a podcast about nature, the outdoors, wonders of that such. But it's where most of my journeys start. This morning, I drove across the topic of last month's episode, past the dunes, bush fields, and grasslands of the Tularosa Basin, until I reached the slopes. For about the last two miles, I drove through a stand of creosote bush, the topic of last month's deep dive. Creosote bush is an odd plant. It's spring here. It's been raining off and on for about the last two days, a sure sign that monsoon season is about to begin. But you would never know looking at creosote bush. It's still the same drab, yellow, olive green color it always is. Some of them have yellow flowers, some of them don't. Some have the little white puffball seed pods, others don't. But all around them, the desert is coming alive. Cactus have new pads growing off them. Prickly pears have their lovely yellow flowers. The hedgehog cactus and chola cactus sport almost bright neon pink and purple. The acatillo, the spindly little upside-down plants that look like their roots are growing towards the sky. The tips covered in bright red flowers, perfectly suited for the hummingbirds that are starting to come back into the area. It's here where I'm standing that the world changes. The grasslands that cover the bottom of the basin have changed. There's more yucca, there's more agave, there's more cactus. There are mesquite trees. And above me, I can even see a few junipers. But where exactly am I? I'm in the parking lot of Oliver Lee State Park a 640-acre park located about 12 miles south of the town of Alamogordo, here in the Tellerosa Basin. Oddly enough, it's named after a guy named Oliver Lee, one of the countless historical figures who, outside of Alamogordo and Otero County, would be largely unknown, and yet somehow warrants an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to him. He was a politician, he was a rancher. He's the reason why there's a railroad that runs from El Paso to Alamogordo. He once got into a gunfight with Pat Garrett, one of those Wild West legends. It was inconclusive, so must not have been that important. And it's here, in this canyon, along the western escarpment of the Sacramento Mountains, that he built his home. But he wasn't the first, and he kind of wasn't the last either. About 400 years before he arrived, the Apache arrived, making their homes in these mountains, a literal fortress in the sky surrounding the Great Plains and deserts. 400 years before them, the Yolgan Molongo people 
hunter-gatherers, horticulturalists, made their homes along the valleys, canyons, and desert floor here. Long before them, the first Paleo-Indians arrived, hunting mammoths and giant sloths. Long story short, even though today this is considered a rustic, remote camping location, it wasn't always that way. This canyon has been used as a transit point, a recreation site, a fortress. And the reason why Oliver Lee came here was one of its most important aspects, water. Thanks to snowmelt and rainfall, the Dog Canyon here, the name of the place, is one of the very few sources of permanent water that flows down into the Tularosa Basin. And it is the focus of today's episode. I'm currently standing at 4,300 feet above sea level, right on the edge of the Tularosa Basin. Looking west, it's more or less flat for 50 miles until you reach the Oregon Mountains. But about 800 feet behind me, the rock face climbs a good 500 feet straight up. And over the next three miles of hiking, I'll climb about 3,000 feet into the sky. It is an unmistakable, unmissable, and truly extraordinary sight. And along the way, I'll be pointing out how the classic American southwestern desert environment that we all picture when we think New Mexico or Arizona suddenly changes into something that we might more accurately see as existing in Colorado, Idaho, or Utah. So I'll meet you out further along the trail. I hope you enjoy. The start of the hike begins at the bottom. Oliver Lee State Park has two main trails. There's Dog Canyon Trail, the main trail I'm going to do today, but there's also a scenic nature trail. It starts at the very bottom of the canyon here, and it is very strange. You see, I'm currently sitting on a rock surrounded by bulrushes, horsetails, milkweed, there's a babbling stream you can hear in the background. On the water below me, there's a pond strider. If I didn't know better, I was at a creek anywhere in the United States. I wouldn't think I'm in a desert. However, across the creek, which is maybe three feet wide at its widest, there is a sheer face of rock. And then, maybe five or so feet above me, there is prickly pear cactus, dried up bushes and grass, there's a banana yucca, and some aquatillo. This lush river basin that I'm standing in vanishes, and the desert reclaims its own. Behind me are stands of desert willow, velvet ash, Rio Grande cottonwood, all species that require lots of water to survive. And it's only in these canyons that they can do so. When I was in the parking lot, 
the temperature was slowly climbing into the 70s, the 80s. It's going to be a hot day no matter what. But down here, next to the water, under the shade, it's probably a good 10 degrees cooler. Hoping you heard that, but there's bird song. These little canyon bottoms are a magnet to them. Any source of water is. There's countless songbirds. There's gambles quail and scaled quail. There's a dragonfly flitting past my head. This is why this canyon has been home to so many things over the years. Oliver Lee took advantage of the water to build an irrigation system to make sure that his cattle and sheep were well watered. Long before him, the Apache used it to rest their horses, to recuperate. In fact, in this canyon, the Apache and the U.S. Army fought several battles during the Long Indian Wars, till eventually they were pushed north into the Mescalaro Reservation. It's a truly peaceful place. Right now, the canyon floor has maybe two feet of water in it. Somewhat unusual. Ordinarily, and later on in the year, most of this water will be gone, flowing underground, where the roots of these plants can still reach it, or it's largely inaccessible to anything else. And right here, I'm standing on the line. This canyon is really noted for its microclimates. About three inches to my right, there are horsetails, bulrushes, all kinds of water-loving plants. About a foot to my left, suddenly all that stops. A literal line in the sand. Beyond it is some sotol agave, and other desert-loving scrub plants. Mormon tea, false mallow, a handful of other species. Inches matter here. The difference between one microclimate that has just enough water, just enough humidity, and just enough shade to keep the plants alive, or too much sun, not enough water, and their seeds would never germinate. Let's continue that climb, shall we? Walking back towards the main trail line for Dog Canyon, I came across something super cool. Wild grapes. The first time I ever found wild grapes out here, I thought it was an invasive species. Someone had spit out some grapes, the seeds took root, that sort of thing. But as it turns out, there is a species of grape native to this region, Arizona grape. All around me, I can see maybe four, five, six plants growing over top of these bushes and up some dead dogwood trees. And in fact, right in front of me, there are small bunches of wild grapes still green. Looking around, it's looking like it's going to be a good harvest this year. 
And I mentioned some songbirds earlier, and I finally got an eye on two of them. Three, actually. Across the creek from me, there's a western bluebird, a spotted towhee, and at the top of a dogwood just down the creek is a house finch. Way off in the background, I can hear doves cooing as well. The more you know. Also right here is another one of those cool lines in the sand. There's a wild grape growing up the side of the rock face, and its little tendrils have entwined themselves in the spiny arms of a sotol, a local species of agave or yucca, I'm not entirely certain, known for its sawtoothed leaves. Nice little juxtaposition between a plant more associated with the Mediterranean than with the desert, and with a plant that more or less defines the local environment, as well as the culinary scene. They actually make a type of, te a type of tequila they make here in southern New Mexico and Texas. Pretty good stuff, actually. first part of Dog Canyon is a switchback going more or less straight up the rock face. It doesn't take much, but the environment has shifted dramatically since I left the creek bed. This exposed face of rock is mostly bedrock, very little topsoil, and yet it's still covered in plants. Sotol, banana yucca, acatillo, cactus of every flavor, small grasses, even the occasional little flowering plant, like false mallow. Every tiny crack capable of gripping onto any dirt at all comes home to life. And that's sort of how this canyon runs. Through the course of this episode, as we climb higher and higher, we're going to see these changes. We're going to see how the environment is different, and how that changes what you find. Since it's daylight out, most of what I'm going to find out here alive, besides the plants, is lizards. Spiny toads, collared lizards, skinks, they're everywhere. I've only been here maybe 20 minutes, and I've already lost count of how many I've seen. The other animal is birds. The rock faces here create areas of thermals. Out behind me, there's already a crowd of turkey vultures, circling as they climb higher and higher, following the thermals in search of their next meal. Between them and the ravens, I'm never alone out here. I just crossed a line. I'm now no longer in Oliver Lee State Park. A cool little place that it is, it is emphasized by being, well, little. About the first half mile of Dog Canyon is inside the park. The rest of it lies in the Lincoln National Forest.
which more or less encompasses the entirety of the Sacramento Mountains. It's a lovely piece of public land that I have taken advantage of over the years. And since it's public, I highly encourage anyone who comes here to use it very publicly, to tell everyone about it, and encourage them to use it too, because sharing is caring. Luckily, I'm not too far from the next real stopping point, so I'll meet you there. I've reached the first real change. After climbing half a mile, more or less straight up the side of the rock face on a switchback trail, I'm now standing on what could be described as a shelf of rock off the mountain. So far, the landscape has changed a little bit. While there's still an enormous amount of creosote bush and scattered desert grasses, I'd say that the most eye-catching plants up here are a combination of acatillo, agave, and yucca. In fact, pretty much every acatillo has flowers on it. Many of the yucca do. And there's even a few agave that have sent out their massive flower stalks. Maybe a sad thing, but to my knowledge, when agave finally send out their flower stalk, it's the beginning of the end. Agave may grow no more than a foot or two off the ground, but these stalks raise a good seven, sometimes eight feet into the air. Agave can live for decades, centuries even. All of it spent hoarding energy and resources over the years for this one blazing moment of glory. Because once the flower stalk blooms, goes to seed, the plant dies, falls over, and is hopefully replaced by a smattering of seedlings. That's why you tend to see little groups of agave all flowering at once, because they're more or less the same age. The yucca, on the other hand, have a slightly different strategy. Most of these will grow a stalk every couple years. And either the plant then just simply continues growing, or the top of it will die, and a new head of yucca will grow off of the root crown. Little buds. In fact, I can actually see one right here. I'm standing in one of, ooh, this is a banana yucca has the big stalk. It's about as tall as I am. The seed pods are, ooh, I'd say the size of a plum or an apricot. And at the very base of the plant, there is a tiny head of yucca growing out of the base. The future is secured for this one, at least. Now, this place in particular holds a special importance to me. Back in 2018, I did this trail for the very first time with no prior training, no prior experience, and really 
no idea what I was getting myself into. But it was here where this trail skirts along the cliff edge that I saw it. It was large with big curved horns, cloven feet, and square pupils. A sheep. But it wasn't a domesticated sheep. It wasn't even a bighorn sheep. It was a Barbary sheep. Now, any history buffs in the crowd might get clued into the word Barbary. Once upon a time, there was a place on Earth called the Barbary Coast. Today, we call it Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. There in the Atlas Mountains and the deserts is where Barbary sheep are from. So what are they doing here in southern New Mexico? Well, after a combination of overgrazing, disease, and hunting drove out the bighorns from these mountains, they were looking for an animal that they could hunt, that could survive in the desert, but would do well in the mountains. So they looked around the world to find a place that looked pretty much like the Sacramento Mountains. As it turns out, the Atlas Mountains of Morocco are pretty close. So they picked up a whole bunch of Barbary sheep, brought them over, and dropped them off. And here, they're actually doing pretty well. It's kind of remarkable. After I struggled to climb up the sheer rock face for an hour to watch a small herd of these things climb what must have been 3,000 feet in about 15 minutes, so it seemed. I've never been more jealous of a sheep in my life. I've entered the territory of a predator. A pretty voracious one at that. The canyon walls here have narrowed slightly. The riverbed is visible a couple hundred feet below me. And there are sheer cliffs all around. The perfect hunting ground for swifts. Anyone who's been around a lake or a golf course or a drainage culvert has probably seen swallows or swifts. They look pretty similar to each other. But just because they look alike doesn't mean they're the same. Near as I can tell, swifts and swallows are not actually closely related at all. Swallows are passerines. They're perching birds. Swifts can't perch. Instead, they cling to cliff faces, other sheer surfaces where they build their nests. But the reason they look the same is because the pressures of the natural world squeezed them into the same mold, evolutionarily speaking. It's called convergent evolution. Think about why whales and fish look so similar 
even though they're massively different. The canyon here provides a nice sheltered location that insects tend to congregate in. This is what draws in the swifts. But even though they're voracious, streamlined predators, that doesn't mean they're the top dog. Because where there's swifts, there's falcons. Not far from here is a place that I've seen peregrine falcons nesting, a sheer cliff wall that we will have the pleasure of walking along. But there's also prairie falcons, a rarer species found down here that I think I've seen on at least one occasion. But what are the swifts after? Well, this time of year, with spring coming alive and more water than there is normally, there's mosquitoes, gnats, countless flies, horse flies. There are even desert cicadas coming out. I've already kicked up two of them. That unmistakable cicada holler giving me the jump each time. There are grasshoppers, and desert locusts. And of course, butterflies. Lots and lots of butterflies. Or moths. At a distance, it can be kind of hard to tell. And most of them are very small, flittering in and amongst the leaves of the creosote bush and little grasses that are growing out here. Man, I love the sound of bird call in the morning. Just had a run-in with another one of those Southwest celebrities that everyone knows about. Not two seconds after I stopped talking about insects, one of the poster childs shows up. Not a big one as far as they go, but big enough for me. Long black body, sleek and shiny like body armor, and unmistakable orange wings. A tarantula hawk wasp. I can't remember the number of documentaries I watched as a child that showcased these things scouring the desert for tarantulas to hunt. Not to eat, but to paralyze, drag back to their dens, bury alive, and then lay an egg on for their young to eat. I think it was that that told me just how morbid and dark the natural world could be. The adults, on the other hand, I mostly see around flowers, eating the pollen and nectar. And in no short order, I'll see hundreds on a single tree or bush. More accurately, I see that tree or bush from a pretty far distance since apparently tarantula hawk wasps have one of the most painful stings in the insect kingdom. And I ain't about that.
tell me if you've heard this before. Once upon a time, a long time ago, the Western United States was under an ocean. I've probably heard that a thousand times. And if somehow you've missed it, congratulations. Now I told you. Yep, once everything I'm standing on, all of this rock, this mountain, this canyon, all of it was underwater. A shallow sea. But luckily, through the power of plate tectonics, all that changed. And long story short, what was once ocean became mountain. But there's still evidence here and there, if you know where to look. In my case, it was looking down while walking. Right here, in the face of one of the rocks, is the unmistakable image of a fossil. It looks like a snail shell cut in half by a bandsaw. It's not the first time I've seen fossils like this out here. In fact, they're all over the place, if you know where to look. Most of them, as far as I'm aware, are ammonites which is kind of what would happen if you took a snail shell and shoved a squid into it and said, that's your home now. Once upon a time, they were one of the most common forms of life in the ocean. Long before the dinosaurs, right up through the dinosaurs, and largely dying out when the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs also more or less destroyed the ocean environment. These days, while not exactly the same, the closest thing you can come to an ammonite is a nautilus, which again looks like what happens when you shove a squid into a snail shell. Though to see those, you have to go to Indonesia or Australia. Bit of a hike, if you're being totally honest. I've been climbing for a while, more or less straight up a rock face with the sun beating down on me. Let this be known that hiking in the desert at noon is an interesting proposal. The good news is, as I've made it to the first of the real ecotones. What is an ecotone? More or less, it's where two ecosystems smash together. In this case, the desert scrubland mixing with this open grassland filled with chola cactus, various juniper and pine trees, scrub and gray oak, and a lot more grass than was growing below. Right above me, one of those turkey vultures dove in to take a closer look. Now it's sulking against the canyon wall because I'm still alive. But why are ecotones important now that I'm back on track? 
Well, where two ecosystems collide, the species that live there can take advantage of, well, two different zones of resources. This open meadow filled with pines and cactus, the remnants of last year's wildflowers, provide substantially different resources than the plain of cactus, acatillo, and creosote bush that's below me. More resources means better chances of survival, increased biodiversity, and increased chance of speciation, whereby a desert species can become a mountain species or vice versa over time and as they find their own little niche to exploit. It's places like these, higher in the canyons, that wildlife will also change. While there are plenty of lizards, still, I've also seen mule deer, in addition to the Barbary sheep that oftentimes go lower. Rattlesnakes, and there's quite a lot more ants than there used to be. I just finished walking across this meadow and kind of just soaking it all in. Based on my research from last month's episode, what I walked across, this combination of grass, oak, juniper, and scrub, would have been very similar to the valley floor during the Ice Age. So if you're careful and quiet, you can, you know, kind of imagine walking through the boulders and cactus and suddenly stumbling upon a giant ground sloth. What a lovely thought. I've reached the halfway point of the trail. Here, in the ruins of a fallen down stone cabin built by shepherds, and in and amongst a stand of alligator juniper and gray oaks, the weather has taken a turn. The desert is generally known for having either not enough water or, oddly enough, too much. Because the ground here is rocky, sandy, and, well, just below it is bedrock, it doesn't absorb water particularly easily. And when water falls too quickly, it turns into one of the bigger dangers you can encounter here in the desert. Flash floods. I've seen a few of them. I've watched a couple of them rip by. And right now, above me in the canyon, I can see the clouds darkening, getting thicker. I even felt a handful of raindrops. Where I am is one of the lower points of the canyon. Through here, water has ripped past in the past many times. The velvet ash and Rio Grande cottonwoods tend to all be bent, leaning over in a downhill direction. The desert willows are filled with debris that is clumped around the bottom of their stalks. All sure signs of 
flash floods past. But that's okay. All in the day's hike during the monsoon season out here in the mountains. But what else is here? Higher up in the canyon along the actual floor. The plant life is an interesting mix of grass. There's a couple of sotol nearby, some small cactus. But there's also the massive alligator junipers I mentioned. Pretty big, arid adapted trees that can grow for seemingly forever. Just below me is a stand of desert willow, interspersed with more horsetails, as well as stands of thistle that are just starting to grow. Their flowers not yet open, but when they do, there'll be these massive purple globes. In the shelter of the junipers are stands of hackberry, small shrubby plants, mostly find higher up on the slopes. There's nightshade, mostly in the form of dried out husks from last year, their bright yellow fruits still clinging to them. I have it on pretty decent authority that they're toxic, so I wouldn't recommend eating them. Off in the background, there's a woodpecker, probably a local ladderback species found out here, about the same size as a downy or hairy woodpecker you might find other places. I've seen a handful of ruby-throated hummingbirds, probably the most widespread hummingbird in North America, and the only one that I grew up with, but out here they're just one of a handful of species. Above me on the cliff face, I can see a large number of swifts flitting around against the rocks. It's here, where the sheer cliffs start to become a bit more common, that they nest. It's also here that I see peregrine falcons probably more frequently than anywhere else. And it's here that the trail becomes hard, climbing again more or less straight up and along that sheer cliff face. Another reason why it's generally speaking a safe bet not to hike here when it's raining, as the rocks become very slippery. It's also up here that I started to see more signs of life, particularly the smaller life. Climbing up, there are burrows and holes in the ground, mostly inhabited by lizards, but also by wood rats. Here, however, a little higher up in the tree cover, there are signs of bigger life. Mostly raccoons, but also ringtails, sometimes called ringtail cats, which are not cats, but are in fact a smaller cousin of the raccoon, pretty much endemic to the southern deserts. Ringtails are kind of a hard animal to find, nocturnal, shy, Something of a white whale for anyone hiking out here. But now I've got to get a move on before the rain either begins or burns off 
it's time to start climbing the cliff face. I've reached the cliff face. That is a climb and a half. Once I was looking up at the swifts as they flew by, admiring their grace. Now I just look to my left and there they are. That's how high up I am. The trail turns here. Instead of following Dog Canyon to the end, it cuts off on a side canyon. On this side of the canyon, the north, or the north side of the canyon, also known as the south-facing slope, this place gets a lot more sun. The environment has shifted back to desert, dominated by creosote, cactus, and yucca. A hummingbird is currently buzzing my head, either because I'm wearing a fluorescent orange hat or because it's defending its flowers. I can never tell. They're very aggressive hummingbirds. I've watched them attack carpenter bees, wasps, all to defend that sweet, sweet nectar which is quite literally the only thing keeping them alive. For birds, they have extremely good memories. You kind of have to, because if they forget where their flowers are, or if they go back to a flower they've already eaten from, they could literally starve to death before they find a new full flower. Living on the edge. just came across a Neotoma midden, or a communal bathroom used by wood rats. This one's pretty big, so I imagine it's been around for a while, stuffed under a rock. It's so big, in fact, that the top of the midden is basically just enough space for a rat. The history of this entire region is stored in this midden. Climate change, change in diet of the rats, all that. It's fun to talk about something that you've never seen before. And then the next time you go out hiking, there it is. Gotta love it. I'm surrounded by the smell of creosote. That rain I was worried about has started, and I'm currently hunkered down under that sheer cliff face. Probably not the best place in the world, but what can you do? The good thing about those Neotomo, Neotoma middens is that they are generally in dry places. So I'm currently sitting next to it hoping that this is just a quick shower and not a major thunderstorm.
Regardless, with the rain coming in, this is going to draw this particular portion of the hike to a close. There's no great point climbing higher into the canyon when there's any risk of flash flood or even on the wet, slippery rocks. Dog Canyon is a beautiful, difficult trail that I have attempted five times and succeeded climbing once. Well, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, they always say. And I'll have to come back here and try again. But luckily, I get to end on a pretty good note. I'm high and dry currently and get to enjoy a nice desert rain shower. Thank you for joining me on this climb. And I hope you learned something interesting along the way. For me, it could be who knows how long before I can start my climb back down. But for you, I'll see you in a couple seconds after the outro for the deep dive portion. See you then. Hey guys, I'm back. For you, it's been a couple of seconds. For me, it's been two days. I am no longer on Dog Canyon Trail. Instead, I'm just downhill from the town of Cloudcroft, New Mexico, on Switchback Trail. The reason is, is that rainstorm I left you in quickly became a hailstorm. So I got to sit under a cliff face in a hailstorm. All in all, not the best place in the world I've ever been. Rather than risk it, I called my hike short and left. But I would feel disingenuous if I didn't make it to the top of something. Not far beyond where I stopped, the environment of the mountains changes pretty dramatically. The desert grasses, bushes, and cactus disappear and are replaced by woodland that I would more closely associate with Kentucky or Pennsylvania. Oaks, ashes, cottonwoods, deciduous forests, generally speaking. Many of the towns around here grow apples and pears, peaches and cherries, things that you wouldn't ordinarily think grow in deserts. Just above that, where I'm roughly standing, the forest changes again from deciduous to conifer. The dominant tree here is the Douglas fir. And, well, they grow thick enough to make this a true forest, as my Eastern heritage dictates. It's been raining the last couple days, so it's pretty wet. Birds are chirping, the flowers are blooming. And to finish off this hike, I'm just gonna walk and talk about the things that grow at the high elevations here in the Sacramento Mountains.
might be wondering, how is it that a mountain range in the southwestern United States, surrounded by desert, in any way resembles a forest from the east coast or even Colorado? And the answer is elevation. I'm currently roughly at 7,000 feet above sea level. The higher you go, the thinner the atmosphere, the less heat the air can hold on to. It's cooler up here. Right now, our temperature reading says it's 56 degrees. Down below me in the desert, it's pushing 80, or will by the end of the day. The cooler temperature means that plants better adapted for cooler climates can survive here. Marooned on an island, more or less. But how did they get here? Well, this may come as a shock to you, but we're in the middle of an ice age right now. We're just in one of those warm interglacial periods. Back when the ice caps covered most of northern North America, 12-ish thousand years ago, these mountains were not alone. These thick forests of Douglas fir and deciduous trees lower on the slope spread out, sort of cascading off the peaks, like if you just suddenly decided to grow your hair out. When the ice retreats and the climate becomes more arid, the forests retreat back up the mountains, clinging on to the areas that they can live in, dying out in the places that they can't. I mentioned this last month talking about creosote. When the world becomes colder and drier, the creosote bush gets pushed south as its arid conditions are overrun. To the north of me, in what is now modern-day Nebraska or Kansas, you would have found steppelands more, remis more reminiscent of Siberia or Alaska, just south of the glacier fields. The same is true on the East Coast. The Appalachian Mountains have a similar climate range, where the higher peaks act as refuges for species that are normally found much further north in New York or Maine. Where I am, because of that fact, has a name. They're called Sky Islands. Because in effect, these mountains act the same as islands do out in the ocean. The plants and animals that live on top of these mountains can't survive in the desert. They can't move, they can't spread. They're stuck here. This creates pockets of biodiversity. It creates endemism. The idea of a species only being found in one relatively isolated or secluded area. The Sacramento Mountains that I'm on have one of those species. It's 
called the Sacramento prickly poppy. It's only found a little bit lower on the slopes in a handful of valleys on the western side of the mountains. Not far from here, on the other side of the valley in the Oscura Mountains, there's a species of chipmunk, the Oscura Mountain chipmunk, that's found nowhere else on the planet. The term Sky Island was originally given to these higher elevation mountain peaks down here in the American Southwest and in Mexico. But the concept of a Sky Island isn't unique to the American Southwest. They're found literally all over the world. Anywhere that a mountain sticks out from the local environment and creates a new one. There are high plateaus located in Venezuela, Colombia, and Brazil, where the tops of the mountains rise above where the jungle can grow. They have their own unique environment. The Alps form alpine environments that are very different from the Mediterranean environments, as well as the northern forests in Germany. Mount Kilimanjaro, a mountain so tall it has glaciers in Africa, a continent not known for its ice. Even the Big Island of Hawaii has a form of sky island. As the volcano rises, each band of elevation maintains its own unique ecosystem. Chances are there's a sky island not far from you, wherever you happen to be listening to. They're absolutely worth going to check out. Humans have long enjoyed sky islands. Generally speaking, they provide access to a much greater range of resources in places where they can be found. Those hunter-gatherers who arrived here 20,000 years ago would have had access to the megafauna living on the valley floor, open dry woodland, but then climbing higher into the mountains where there's more water, access to different resources. Conifers, as opposed to deciduous trees, different sources of food. This holds true even today. The valley floor is home to peccary, mule deer, a variety of birds, cactus fruit, yucca, agave, mesquite pods. Well, here in the mountains, you have mule deer, but also elk, squirrel, turkey. There would have been bighorn sheep in the past. Today, there's barberry sheep, hackberry and raspberry, acorns and pine cones. All could have been used as a source of food. In more recent times, these mountains, and the many like them across the southwest, were a major source of pretty much all of the building material, i.e. wood. Douglas firs, the dominant tree around here, 
are also the dominant tree used in much of the construction industry. Basically every railroad tie, every mine shaft, scaffolding, most of the buildings were built out of Douglas fir cut out of mountains like this one. In addition, the mountains have also been mined. Gold and silver, copper are the famous ones, but just about every resource you can think of, prospectors have looked for in these hills. Not far from here, there are quite a few defunct mines that never panned out. In a very modern sense, these mountains also still act as a refuge. In the heat of summer, down in the desert, it can spike 110 degrees, easy. While up here, it'll be a balmy 75. I don't know about you, but I know which one I would rather spend my free time in. Because this episode has run a bit long and has been broken up due to the weather, I'm going to stop here and release this as a single episode. There will be a shorter deep dive episode that will release by itself shortly after this. If you liked what you heard, give me those five stars. Remember, stars keep the algorithm of the machine god happy. If there's something you think I can do better, leave a comment or shoot me an email at roadnottraveledpodcast at gmail.com. And who knows, your suggestion may well make its way into the show, making this a bigger, brighter, and better place overall. I've been your host, Deeper Probst, out here on the road not traveled. See you there.